Did you know that kinky wellness is integral to your self-development? Hi, my name is Dana Shrigal. I'm a kinky wellness coach and owner of The Partition, home of kinky wellness. Each Monday, I bring on a guest to discuss why kinky sexual wellness deserves a seat in the wellness conversation. You can catch my solo shows on Wednesdays, but let's jump into it. Hey, and welcome back from our one-week break. I hope everyone stayed kinky last week. I'm very excited because today we're bringing on Ascilla from Ascillary Kink Support. Now, I met Ascilla at the Delhi Erotic Edge event, and I'm very happy to say that she's joining us today to expand on one of the classes that I took while I was there. So Ancilla is a writer, journalist, sex and kink educator, and author of novels, both erotic and otherwise. As a former sex worker, she has on-ground insight into human sexuality. And as a graduate of communications, she is able to apply that to create structured methodology to apply to the sexual. She's a pansexual, polyamorous, kinky, and constantly talking about how labels are reductive. And I'm excited to say that we are going to be diving into her class on deconstructing and uncovering your sexual self through the microscopic studies. So in total, she has outlined six elements, which is the personal, social, ethical, political, emotional, and artistic. So why don't we welcome Ancilla to the stage? Hello, Ancilla, and welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. I'm so glad that we connected at the Delhi Erotic Edge, and I'm super excited to be going into one of the classes that you taught there. I'm excited to talk about it as well. I'm really glad you attended. It was great seeing you. Oh, thank you. So today we're going to be talking about your class on deconstructing and uncovering your sexual self through the microscopic study that you did, which includes six elements. And we're going to be starting with the personal. Okay, so just really quickly, I'll explain what I mean by microscopic study. I mean that as a sexual being, you're not just a singular thing. And as a sexual being, you belong in society and to various elements as much as you belong in it as, say, a political being or a mental being or an emotional being. So your sexual self is as constant as the rest of your existence, your mental being or your emotional being. All of it is just as constant. So your sexual self can be understood in various different ways. It has many levels of influence. And one of, I mean, I divided them into six levels. And the first one is the personal. So the personal is, you know, like, we, we believe that we have a sexual relationship with ourselves, but we don't really go deeply into that because first of all, we feel like the sexual relationship that we have with ourselves is mainly because we don't have the opportunity to have a sexual relationship with someone else yet. And as a sexual being, you're like initiated into sexuality sort of when you start having whatever you define as sex. But your sexual relationship, your sexual identity as who you are begins essentially when you begin. And the personal concerns itself with that. So I divided into three categories. The first one is the formative, which is essentially formative sexual experiences are the ones that occur. You understand them long after they occur. When they're happening, you may not have like a physical understanding of what it means to be a sexual being in your body because you haven't experienced perhaps a sexual urge. You haven't experienced comprehension of it yet. It's likely that you'd be very young in this period. You know, like I know that as a child, I experienced urges and desires to be hit, for example, and I didn't know where this was coming from, but I knew that it was like a strange desire and I shouldn't like talk about it very much. And if I did talk about it or like if I was trying to seek it out, it was trying to seek out something illicit, something that was a different pleasure than any pleasure that I understood so far, like the pleasure of eating something like candy or ice cream. It wasn't the same kind of pleasure. So the formative sexual experiences that you have are usually in that phase it's like you're you have elements of your sexuality inside you but you're not sure exactly what they mean past which point you get to like the fantastical elements of your sexuality fantastical doesn't necessarily refer to like you know you're like as an adult I often also fantasize about what I'd like and what I'd like to do but when you're younger and before you have any actual sexual experience with another person you do form this sort of narrative of what it means to be in a sexual relationship. Like for me, I know that the narrative that I formed involved multiple people. It involved a person that was hurting me, a person that was caring for me, a person that was watching and not really doing anything and not really intervening and perhaps taking advantage of me later. The many elements of my sexuality that were quite prevalent and visible to me in this, for instance, what exactly makes me feel good? You know, like being hurt. 
but also the fact that I wanted someone to also check in on me after that and like make sure I was doing okay. And then there's also the fact that like there's some voyeuristic elements and the fact that these were people of all genders meant that there was a sexual orientation of myself that I was discovering. And the fantastical is also influenced by like, what do you see in the romantic zeitgeist, right? Like for instance, in my head, these people, this person who was hurting me had to be abusive because I hadn't seen anything in society that indicated that somebody could hurt me because I asked them to and because they would be pleasurable to them as well and because it was consensually negotiated. It was just, okay, so I know in what kind of relationships people get hurt or get beaten and they're abusive ones. And then they get rescued from them by another character, one who like takes care of you, but then also takes advantage of you in some ways. Like there's a price you pay for rescue. So like the fantasy of it, also there's parts of it that you don't understand right off the bat. Like there are parts of it that were related to my sexuality and there were parts of it that were related to sexuality as it's understood by society. And then after that, there's the masturbatory. Also like as far as the masturbatory is concerned, uh, the way that I define it doesn't actually have to do with genitals or to do with orgasm. It has to do with the fact that like with intention, you undertake an act, any act, whether that's like self-stimulation or something completely different to the goal of your own pleasure, like whatever that act is. Because uh, for some people, like I have a friend for whom it, it was when she was really young, she would like to just remove her clothes and stand in the corner of the room because it made her feel sort of ashamed. And that shame was very gratifying to her. Whereas touching herself or like trying to bring herself to orgasm really did nothing for her. So when I talk about the masturbatory, it's about when you start exploring yourself as a sexual being, you only have yourself and you have your fantasy. And then you, they sort of intermingle for you to create like this realm of self-pleasure. And because all of the detailing of this realm of self-pleasure, it is always about touch yourself, reach orgasm. If you have a clitoris, maybe it's harder for you to do. And like the entire conversation becomes limited in this realm, which makes a lot of people believe that they didn't have masturbatory experiences or they weren't able to successfully masturbate or bring themselves gratification until they were older. But we all have methods of gratifying ourselves that are very telling about who we are as beings. So that's the personal. Well, the biggest takeaway that I have from the personal is your idea of virginity. Like the fact that I do believe a lot of people think you're a virgin and then all of a sudden you're sexual after you have sex and you're right it there's something about it that we need to reframe this context around virginity it's not it's it's blown up and glorified bigger than it actually is and that being a sexual being actually it has nothing to do with our virginity or not i mean of course not i mean first of all you're not sexually activated one day it's not that one day you're just like you're in public or like you're with a person and they touch you and it's like, okay, now you are a sexual being. Virginity, of course, it has a lot of moral elements to it. Essentially, we believe that so long as it's clear, your sexual desire is contained within yourself, even if it's like in your head, uh, it's benign, it's not hurting anyone. And on, honestly, probably we can wish it away if you're not manifesting it, right? Like having sex with other people is considered a manifestation of your sexuality. Whereas when it's just inside you, it's like, it's benign, it's not doing anything to anyone, but then it manifests sometimes in like, you know, people touch themselves or like they demonstrate sexual behavior that they don't know is sexual behavior. And then as adults, sometimes we know to shut it down, but also to like teach the morality around that, to be like, don't do that, that's wrong. It's for a particular period in your life. Like it's for marriage, it's for love. It's for a point when you're like, allowed to manifest sexuality because a you're with another person and b it's socially sanctioned in some way so yeah virginity is like i don't think it's a thing that's lost or gained or maybe even exists it's more like comprehension of your sexuality is something that comes slowly mm-hmm. and it also doesn't come the first time you engage sexually with another person and perhaps reframing virginity to understanding your sexual self would be a much better way to go about it Absolutely. Absolutely. So moving to the second one, you have the social. So what would be the social breakdown of this? Okay. So sexuality is, I mean, your sexual self is a social self as well, because how we act sexually is not just a function of pleasure. Like, you know, it's not just a function of very simplistic understanding of pleasure that like you touch me here, I'll feel good and touch me there. I'll not feel so good. 
that's not all sex is. You also learn a morality surrounding it. You also learn what exactly the world thinks of it and how you respond to what the world thinks of it. So it starts with a familial understanding of it. So basically the first feedback you get about what sexuality is and familial also inc includes like your peer group. So the first feedback you get about it is like, what does your family tell you about how and what it means to be a sexual being? I mean, that's very often where our morality that's associated with sexuality, that's where it arises. It's like, right, so we've been taught that like sex is a bad negative thing, for instance. And if you're taught like a morality that like, don't do it, it's dirty, then at some point your sexuality may derive thrill from acting out against that idea. So like, you know, when I was younger, for me knowing that it was considered inappropriate or I was taught that it was inappropriate to go and sleep with a bunch of people whenever I feel like it. The thrill associated with doing that was taught to me on a familial level when I was really young. And then after the familial level, you have like the your romantic and so social relationships that you develop past that point. Like at some point you start having relationships with other people, right? And then all of the fantastical elements that you've learned about sex, the entire narrative about sex that you've gathered until then, it's all well and good. You know a bunch of stuff about yourself, but you don't know about your reactions yet. So when you gain sexual stimulus or like another person is added to, like you cannot control the script that they're acting out of. So you learn the intermingling of sexual scripts for the first time. And as a result, sometimes you learn that like, yeah, you discover your sexuality through your partners. You discover like, hey, in this context, when you do this particular thing to me, it's extremely hot. And on the face of it, I never realized that I would find such a thing attractive. And sometimes it's because you feel comfort in that relationship. And sometimes it's because you just never contextualized a particular act in that way. Uh, some things can be received. Like, for instance, I never contextualized maintaining or painting my nails as a sexual act. I always thought of it as something social that I had to do to be beautiful as a woman, for instance. Whereas like being with a partner who saw it that way and managed to eroticize it in that way made it sort of a permanent part of my sexuality. When I say permanent, I mean five years because everything changes, like, you know, everything changes eventually. But like, yeah, so you just contextualize it accordingly. And then, of course, there's the most important element of like sexuality, which is like sociosexuality, which is the sexual narrative and the sexual script around which we grew up, which varies deeply based on where you grew up, right? Like India, for example, has amongst the highest prevalence of women rape fantasies. Now, does being somebody who's into rape play necessarily mean you were raped or you were, or it's being informed by the social script? No, but the prevalence of rape culture and how it intermingles with romance and the way romances are represented in India obviously leads to you romanticizing a certain act of force, a certain coercion of your will, and equivocating it with romance. And then what you do with it from that point onwards sort of depends on how deeply you're thinking about your sexuality, because you could also very easily end up in sort of a non-negotiated but forced is okay because it's hot to be situation, which a lot of us have been in that place because we don't know to like talk about it. We also know that like it has an acceptability. And it's, it's like, it's part of the acceptable convention. The example that I like to give when I'm like sort of trying to explain how sexual convention changes and how it influences our sexuality is that, you know, 10 years ago, it was weird to choke a person, but like off late, it's sort of fine. Like mm -hmm. even in like casual random hookups, everyone's sort of into choking now. It's no longer a weird thing. It's no longer like inaccessible in the sexual side, guys. So that now influences how like we perceive sex that is normal, quote unquote normal. So the way that that social understanding of sex continues to evolve uh, influences how you feel about your sexuality and from where you get the input that makes you feel like this is okay, this is not okay, I should question this, I can't really question this. Is this all right? Is this not all right? What exactly am I doing and where is all of this coming from? So that's the social aspect of sexuality. Well, with the social, the familiar, so you mentioned that, you know, some people were raised that masturbation is bad and sex is bad, or this should be weighted for marriage. Now, I feel like it comes down to an individual when they do start their sexual wellness journey on this, it's their responsibility, to, their responsibility to really break that cycle. If they're raised, if they decide to have children, because I do feel that that is something that does get passed down from one generation to the next. And it just kind of right. reinforces it. 
and which can be difficult when you are the first person to say, you know what, I'm going to rechange how I view sex. I'm going to be the first one to really open this conversation up. I mean, a certain level of commitment to self-growth and changing your own perspective and unlearning the things that you've been taught is sort of social service. I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, I'm comfortable calling it a level of social service that everyone should be required to do. But I also recognize that like in order to do unlearning of that nature, you kind of need to be removed from an environment that's constantly reinforcing these systems mm. and also reinforcing them with consequence, which is like very common in India, right? Like I can decide that I understand sexuality differently and I may want to like, for instance, let's say I have a daughter. Yeah? I want to teach her something different and I may on a personal level do that. But I exist in a family structure where I am disenfranchised, for instance. I'm not talking about myself. I'm just saying me as like an example. And in that case, she, my daughter may learn certain things from me and value them. And I may feel the responsibility to teach them to her. But just as easily, I could have never learned those things because I never left the environment where I had the safety to be able to do that work or to change my perspective over sex. I mean, for a lot of people, it's still consent is still something they're unable to exercise because first of all say you're in a marital relationship and the majority of sex in my country happens within marital relationships you're not actually allowed to revoke consent as a woman Mm. so if you're not allowed to do yeah I mean marital rape is not outlawed there's a certain amount of sexual violence that's punishable under the domestic violence act but it's like a gray area actually it's not a gray area marital rape is just allowed Uh, but so yeah so like you can't really unlearn the things that you need to unlearn unless you have the safety to be able to unlearn them safety and I guess a lot of education in which will be difficult in a country that has such heavy censorship on things like this it's very difficult it's very difficult to get information out there I mean I write a lot of books about sexuality and some erotic novels Uh, I can't sell them in India no you can't sell them at all Wow. So the education that you're limited by, is it starts within your education system then? It's just not there? I mean, yes, we have sex ed classes in very few schools in a very specific kind of school. Like, for instance, I had sex ed classes to a certain extent that I was when I was growing up. But what are we being taught? Right. We're being taught how your body functions and also morality. Don't do it or you will get pregnant, get sick, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we're being taught. And a lot of it is not even accurate. I mean, a lot of sex education that we are given is sort of outlandish. I know that I had a teacher who told us that girls past a certain age should not sleep with like stuffed toys because they take sexual thrills from them. Like this was part of my sexual education. Oh, wow. That's that. So moving to the next one, like ethical, like that's up for debate. What's ethical and what's not ethical of what you're being taught and what's allowed in a country and what's not right so actually the way that I approach the ethical it starts it first starts with like a personal set of ethics Mm -hmm. like because the first thing is like sexual conflict right sexual conflict is internal when it first happens it's definitely internal like uh, I'll give you an example essentially say you're like you say you live in a very oppressive country uh, and you're a woman and you're submissive and you're heterosexual. So you're going to be submissive to a man. And in kink circles, when we discuss like this configuration, we're often talking about it in the way that, no, your feminism does not need to contradict your submission because uh, one is a choice and the other is uh, enforced upon you by society. You know, oppression is enforced, submission is chosen. But the thing is that the representation of these things is often so similar, right? Like I know couples, for instance, where you know, the woman is submissive, the man is dominant, but the way that it plays out in their household is that she's doing all the cooking and all the cleaning and laying all the meals at the table. And the other parties in the household, like the children or like any other allied parties that may live there as a joint family, they don't see submission. They just see a continuation of like social upbringing that they've seen all their lives. And when you have a kid, they are going to view that. They may even view it as romance or a form of love. But if that learning means that they believe that at some point they are entitled to the form of love where a woman is serving them their entire life, it may not be a sexual decision to opt for that romance. Mm -hmm. So like the conflict of what does my sexuality mean 
and am I representing sometimes in a way that is problematic to my own ideals? It's something that we should definitely consider. I'm not saying that it's wrong on the face of it. You have to, we all have to make our own decisions on how we want to represent and who it matters to us to represent. You know, like if it's me in my house and I want to do some acts of like sexual service for my husband and it's just us and it's understood between us exactly where I'm coming from and exactly where he's coming from, it's different. If there's a kid involved, there's a kid watching this, either the child needs to be old enough that I'm able to truly have this conversation with them or I need to make sure that the child does not have the opportunity to learn certain things that can be misinterpreted. Either we need completely clear communication in which I'm able to explain to them exactly where I'm coming from. And that's a gradual conversation. You don't like rush into it. So are feminism and submission at odds with one another? No, but there are situations in which they may raise conflict within you yourself about Am I really okay with this? Am I really okay with like perpetuating the social convention that I'm a woman, I should shave my legs as an act of service? Like, am I okay with that? Maybe you are. And maybe you have good reasons to be. Maybe I'm not. And I have good reasons to be as well. But asking those questions is a part of like dealing with our sexuality. And also a good amount of dissonance is good for sex, I feel. Like, you know, conflicts and coming out of different spaces means that we're constantly engaging different parts of our being. And the more you're engaged, I feel like the more exciting sexuality is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's, that's, the, that's the conflict-based element of it, which is sort of personal. And then there's like the impact of your sexuality on other people, which is like a little bit outside of the personal, for instance. You know, you have your own expectations that you go into sexuality with. And I think this has a tendency to happen more with like cishet men than anyone else because... They've taught a lot of things are okay to expect and ask for as a form of love. You know, like it's that thing where like your mom cooks for you because she loves you and you can wake her up in the middle of the night to do so. And it's a form of love for her. So she's never going to make you question it. But you believe that love means that every woman should cook for you whenever they, whenever you want it. Mm-hmm. And that kind of entitlement, like it extends itself to sexuality. And sometimes you impose that onto like your female partners. And then are you maybe expecting things from them that they're not comfortable giving, but believe they have to give because it's part of the social diktat. So that's the impact of your sexuality on other people. And we sort of all, you know, project expectations onto our partners that may not necessarily be our own expectations. They might be expectations that are taught to us by the world. So that's the, and then what you were saying, the social position of morality and imposition, because then there is the social aspect of ethics is what you brought up right at the beginning is that yeah a lot of things that you are taught in the world where do they come from and how do we feel about it as a society and sometimes that means that who you are as a sexual being is not acceptable in the world uh sometimes the ethics of society work against you and sometimes you know like we have a tendency when we don't understand things to demonize just identity as a perversion I mean, it's more intellectual as an exercise. You may want to get into advocacy as a result of that, or you may want to see how you can undo it in your own social environment or how it manifests in your own sexual understanding of things. Like there are things we do sexually that we find dirty or wrong, and we do them because we find them dirty and wrong. And where did we learn that? Yeah, well, it comes down to interpretation, but also with the what is right and what is wrong socially yeah that changes depending on where you are for sure so then we would go into the political stance of this and so that's the next one that you have here is the political right so the political is about so you know how the personal is political the sexual is part of the personal therefore the sexual is political but we often try to like discount the political aspect of sexuality partly because there's this belief that making sexuality politically correct is sort of not the way to go. And when we hear the term political, especially nowadays, I think we just immediately hear the term politically correct, which is never like a true to the world representation of the politics of anything. So for instance, when you're playing with kink, right, there are a lot of things like the first aspect of it was like sexual identity. What does the ident? what are the politics of the identity of how you represent? And there are many aspects to it that the legacy of which 
you got to sort of understand why do these implements like whips and torture implements, why do they exist? They exist because people were actually enslaved ones. And I mean, modern day slavery in some forms continues. So all of these things have a history and a legacy that you owe it to yourself to understand so that you can develop a more ethical practice, a more informed one. And sort of even, you know, I'm not saying that just because something has a legacy that's problematic, but this is more than problematic though. Uh, you, you don't get to touch it or you don't get to play with it, but it's like, if you use it to continue to perpetuate certain stereotypes, then you're also informed by a part of politics that you may want to deconstruct for yourself. And then there's oppression, which is sort of, so a lot of us are judged for our sexuality, right? Like. There is judgment, which is, it's like an indictment of your choices. And then there's oppression, which is an indictment of your identity. And oppression has a very heavy impact on how your sexuality is allowed to manifest. Now, say you're not heterosexual in a country where homosexuality is outlawed. It means that the spaces that exist for you to be a sexual being are extremely limited which as a result means that you're constantly experiencing a lack of safety within your sexuality. And that's gonna show up in the ways that you interact with other people, in the way you experience your sexuality in the places where you feel like it's safe to do so. And that's a major example. There are like minor ways in which oppression acts out of the old time. Who is it okay to reveal who you are to and who is it not okay to reveal it? Because sometimes say I reveal to like a friend of mine that I'm into whips and chains and whatever is the going symbol for BDSM, it would probably be fine. Maybe she'd be weirded out. Maybe she want to talk to me more about it. But then there's like a different part of like this exposure where say somebody is employed at my house or it's my family. When they find out about it, the social ramifications of that are different. And this is a country where people still get straight up killed for having strange sexuality. Strange, I say, but what I mean is anything that deviates from a norm. So oppression is more, I mean, I don't want to say it's more serious than judgment, but it does have a heavier impact on how you're able to exist as a sexual being. Well, if there's uh, death involved, I, sorry, to your point, I was going to say, if there's death involved, then absolutely. I mean, of course, like yeah. there are still parts of the country where we kill people for marrying into the wrong class. Like, and this is like, we like to pretend that the caste system is over, but it's nowhere near over. Like it's rampant. It's a part of everything. There are some of us with Twitter accounts and loud voices who have the privilege of like a casteless existence, but that is a minority of people. And for us to refuse to see the political elements of sexuality, for instance, where do ideas of who can sit on the furniture and who has to sit on the floor, where does that hierarchical idea, even when it manifests in sexuality, come from? It comes from a place where we understood that like, if you're sexually, if you're superior to me, then you will sit up there on a bed or a sofa and I am inferior to you, therefore I will sit on the floor. Like we learned systems of hierarchy from systems of politics and society and also the law. I mean, that was the final element of the political aspect of sexuality, which is how the law is in your country is not going to directly or it's not going to immediately impact the sexual mores of the time. But over time, it's going to have an impact, right? So you could outlaw or you could pull, like, for instance, us ending like the anti-sodomy law. It's a great step forward. But for it to inform people and get them to open their minds and like, start to accept people as, as different and who they are, it's going to take some time because also we have the recent memory of it being against the law and the law influences how we think about certain things. Now, BDSM itself is not actually outlawed in India. And I had a long chat with my lawyer about this once, but also what he, what he told me was that the reason it's not outlawed is because nobody precedented it. Nobody thought about it. Like, you know, it would, morality would dictate that it would be, but nobody thought of it as like, oh, someday there's going to be people who are going to play with floggers and whatnot for the pleasure of it. So they just didn't, there's no explicit law that states that it's against law. And so long as, you know, there's a level of consent that you're maintaining, <clears throat> you're likely good. But that only holds as long as there's trust between the two people, three people, as many people that were involved. So I have a bruise on my body and I go tell the cops that 
this person beat me up and there was no consent and then it's assault mm. so the law dictates how you're able to act out your sexuality where why how much and also honestly how wrong or right it feels how safe it feels how comfortable it feels and what's the risk associated with it yeah absolutely and i feel like when it comes to the law it it can scare people into doing things like even if they want to do it if there's a law that says you shouldn't people might be fearful of like well, I don't want to go to jail. So I just will hold this in. I won't, I won't tell anybody because the alternative is someone could misinterpret this and I could end up in jail. I mean, yeah, also many other things like, you know, say you're going through a divorce. Uh, I know that this happened to my partner when he was going through a divorce. His sexuality was publicized and he works for a very conservative organization and it was difficult because he has a child and he wanted custody of his child. And all of these things are brought into question when, when it comes up, when like on a day-to-day basis, we're just living our lives and there's a certain amount of safety we take for granted. But at any moment, you could be in a really bad situation that you have not precedented. Mm-hmm. And people can use it against you, even if it like, w- I want to say almost when they feel like it, like if something started out good and then, you know, maybe you piss them off one day and they're just like, you know what, I'm angry at you and this is what I'm going to do. And unfortunately there are cases of that all over the place. I mean, my former partner, I was with him for a very long time, but, and he was a party to our relationship in all ways, including the kinky ones. But when he wanted to express displeasure, against me my my sexuality was a mental illness and he used that excuse with other people he told people in my life that she's mentally ill and there's proof of it and you know like I can show you the kind of things that she wants to do and like he showed people pictures of like whip marks on my body being like what kind of sane individual would do this only because I was speaking out about the fact that he was physically abusing me Mm. and this was an excellent defense for him it was like how can you physically abuse a person who's going around getting this done to themselves? And that simplistic reasoning is enough for some people. It's like, it's enough for most people. Nobody likes a victim that doesn't fit a profile. Mm. Nobody likes one who's like empowered and like sexual and okay with it and open about it. And so it's very easy for people to paint you into a particular image or corner if they know all of these things about you. I mean, for instance, no one will work in my house because they saw some handcuffs and chains in here. Oh, wow. That's actually so interesting. But it's true. People are judgmental. And I feel like people in general, if they don't know, we're all fearful of the unknown. So we think of like worst case scenario before anything ever comes up, any facts that we just immediately go there just as a human race. So to be honest, the people who were uncomfortable with the things that this, and it's not like I was brandishing them. Yeah. It's just like, there's a chain tied to the bedpost. It's just always there. And there are handcuffs and like on the night, it's just always there. (laughs) And uh, when they had an issue with them, they didn't talk to me about it, but they talked to the entire neighborhood. So I call, (laughs) so a bunch of people told me that this is what is being talked about. And I was like, you know what? Let me have a conversation with this woman. Like, there were two different women with whom this happened. The first one, sort of amenable. She was like, okay, I understand. And she had questions to ask me about this situation. And the second one was extremely hostile and really angered that I had talked to her about it. Talked to her because she, I guess, was focusing on the fact that I was mad about the fact that she had told the entire neighborhood. Mm. Which, yes, I was. It's just that... I wish that you just asked me. I was I was fine with answering these questions. Anyway, it led to a boycott. So I have to do everything in my house these days. Well, it's been six months. So I've gotten used to it. Well, <laughs> moving on. Those are some funny stories. But we can move on to the emotional. Okay, so the emotional aspect of sexuality is somewhat personal and somewhat informed by how our emotional mechanisms are built out of time, over time. And what we enjoy as emotion and what we don't enjoy is emotion. And also to like sort of, um, you know, we tend to think of things, even emotional things in really binary terms. Like I like this, I don't like this, I enjoy this, I don't enjoy this. I feel 
good, I feel bad. Whereas emotions are sort of huge and the enjoyment of them comes from sort of exploring all the hues of it. And then the first, uh, the first aspect of like an emotional understanding of your sexuality is what do you associate, like association? What do you associate certain sexual acts, certain sexual feelings, certain things with? Because essentially it's sort of impossible to describe emotion. It's possible to feel it in like a lot of different ways, but we use other emotions to describe emotions. Yeah, Like if I have to tell you that I'm angry, I'm going to tell you that I feel aggressive, which is like just me using two emotions to say the same thing. Whereas association allows you to sort of experience the hues of things. And sexual, sexually, there are like many associations you draw with sexual acts that are performed with your body. Like for instance, I have, a, I have an association with my wrist in the sense that if somebody grabs it, it makes me feel immediately sort of drawn in to the person and sort of controlled by them. And then that's, that's the part of it that like stands out most for me sexually. And knowing my body like well enough to know what associations I draw from which experiences and what feelings. And sometimes it's just like smells and like what they evoke in you. And sometimes it's words. Sometimes it's the way somebody is like handling your body or the way they're handling your mind or like what you're discussing with somebody. And then you can sort of follow like a system to devise like how how do you find your associations like you know you have a, you're in a sexual act you identify the part that made you feel something and then you question why did I feel that and then perhaps you go back to when was the first time I experienced that how did I feel in that situation is that connected with how I'm feeling now what was the world around me can I experience some of that same safety maybe that same excitement and how does it change when I do it with another person or another partner? So like association adds this sort of richness to your sexuality. It's not just skin deep. It's not just what's happening in this moment. And then on the other side of that, that is trauma. Like we all handle and deal with and I guess sort of process trauma very differently. So it's hard to have like a single explanation for how trauma may manifest in your sexuality. For some of us, it's like a reconditioning. Yeah, like I have a ton of sexual trauma associated with violence and it is in many ways a part of my sexuality. And the way that it's a part of my sexuality now is very different from the way that it was a part of my sexuality 15 years ago. And that's because I have reconditioned my trauma sexually to a in a certain way, in a particular way, inside a particular configuration. Sometimes your sexuality helps you deal with your trauma. Sometimes your trauma helps you deal with your sexuality, but sometimes it's neither one of those things. For some people, it's just a thing that you necessarily need, need to keep separate because if you are triggered in a sexual situation, it kills the situation for you. But figuring out our relationship with our trauma does help you know what is safe to do, what is not safe to do, what is enjoyable to you and what is not enjoyable to you. And sometimes, you know, like trauma has such strange associations that you don't know that something's going to be repulsive to you and you don't know why it is repulsive to you until you start questioning it along a particular line. So that's what I mean by trauma's association in your sexuality. And then there's memory, which I suppose is also sort of associated with the association aspect of this. Like, okay, so like we have very emotional memories as human beings. Yeah, like we remember math and we remember numbers and we remember facts and dates. But the thing that we remember best of all is like, heightened states of being we remember intensity we remember joy we remember emotions are how we remember stuff so like if you have a very emotional sexuality you're going to be able to parse through it better and a lot of us have a very emotional sexuality I mean that's uh, earlier I guess I was saying to you about casual sex that like we think of it as an unemotional thing it's not unemotional as much as it's short-term emotion but we believe that like we won't revisit those emotions at any time. So it's better to just pretend you didn't have them. But like maintaining sort of like a repository, I call it my dictionary of emotions, essentially. Like I like to sexualize the emotion that I was feeling in a particular situation and then revisit it and see like, how does it stand out in my memory? And what does it do for my sexuality? You know, because all of this stuff, they're just acts, yeah? Like you whip me, you chain me, you lock me somewhere. Those are just acts. What makes them really powerful is the history and the history is often comprised of emotionality it's comprised of all of the things i've felt in association with this act my entire life everything that's led me to do it now how my feelings about it have changed and evolved over the years so i'm experiencing a physical act 
for it to truly be intense, I want to experience it in like all of its complexity. And memory is like a really powerful way of doing that. Yes. And to your point about even what you said, trauma about, you know, you might not know. I I talk a lot about this in regards to triggers. It's sometimes you don't know until it happens. Like it's, it's shock. Like it kind of surprises you out of nowhere because our brain, our memory is not as good as our memory in our body. Our body can remember a lot more than the memories in our brain. And so it's very important to just understand that even if you are having sex with someone just one time, one off, you might run into a situation where they do uncover a particular traumatic experience and no one's immune to these things. Exactly. Also, you know, like I find triggers a little bit difficult because I'm personally, I'm unable to pinpoint mine uh, because they change based on like, first of all, who I'm with, how I'm feeling, the circumstances of the situation and the same thing may not work twice. And it's difficult to, to pinpoint triggers, but I know how it feels to be triggered. So when I am immediately like having the tools to just go back and like, deconstruct that entire situation just be like okay what all are the aspects that are at play here and which one of them stands out as trauma in my memory which is making me feel this way so just doing the work in that exact situation like right there it's always really helped me deal with what what I understand to be trauma in my sexuality or just manifesting within it Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, even that, what you said, it's it, how you were at the beginning of the day, you could wake up on the wrong side of the bed. It could be something just super small, like, like everything changes all the time. And what you said is a, another person could have a different way of how they do it, different energy, maybe their smell, the cologne that they're wearing, whatever, like perfume, it changes everything. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and then your last point is the artistic. Look, I'm super romantic as a human being. People meet me and they don't really believe this about myself. Well, I'm sentimental. I'm sentimental for recreation. It's just because I'm a writer. It's what we do. Mm-hmm. Okay, like we also, you you start writing metaphor and beauty into the world and then you start living it. You just start living your life. In met- and sexuality lends itself so well to like artistic endeavor because it has so many elements that you can carry with you and sort of interpret in different ways all the time. Yeah. And uh, I think kink and BDSM in particular are very easy to romanticize. So the, the way I see artistic is in, it's in two ways. It's in romantic symbolism, which I guess we do all the time anyway, right? Like we do it with wedding rings. We do it with uh, keepsakes, like things that we give to each other, letters, feelings, and like, it's personal to everybody. It's different for everybody where their romantic symbolism lies. Yeah, like for me, the most the most powerful symbol of romance is like my husband put a shoelace around my neck once, like uh, just sort of uh, some years ago. And I just wore it for a few years until it sort of fell apart. And it was like, I called it my shoelace collar. And it just, it just lends itself so well to like art, to like exploring the nature of our relationship using this sort of like it's this really regular article of his being right it has no meaning in and of itself but you can build so much meaning into it and why not I mean why would you not want to enjoy that aspect of sexuality where it's it's just sort of beautiful magical sort of it you could not create the same meaning in another relationship it's individual to everybody. And that's where you get the color, the intensity, the beautiful stories, the memories, the things you remember when, you know, it's, you've spent 50 years together and then the person dies and like you're opening a box and there's a shoelace in it. And then that's where you start the story. Again, I said, I'm a writer. This is just how I operate. That's- and then there's aestheticism, uh, beauty and aestheticism, which is like, we all see things differently. And the things in which we see beauty are different as well. And expressing your sexuality to the things that we find beautiful on a very simple, in a very simple way, we do it in the way, how do you dress for like, how do you dress to make yourself feel sexual, for instance? For a lot of people, it's like leather, 
or lace or just you know beautiful lingerie or whatever it is or it could be a different sense of aesthetics altogether uh for instance for me it's like a dark and black and bloody like all of these are my set it's my sense of aesthetics does it add to sexual yeah i feel like i'm expressing who i am as a sexual being using these things because they have meaning to me and that meaning is meant to decorate my sexuality and a little bit of irrationality like we don't need our sexuality to be super serious yeah like i don't need it to constantly be like what are the political ramifications of the sexual act that you have conducted today i don't need it to be like that i also need it to be sort of loose and free and wild and open to being strange and unusual and really personal and authentic and, and fun. i guess the artistic is what that is and fun yes yes i'm sorry i use that word very rarely fun i feel like it it should i feel when you're describing it it these are all things that adults need like bring in that are fun we forget that life is supposed to be fun and it doesn't have to be what you said so serious and we can just relax and go back into this playful state that I feel that a lot of our structures around us they don't want us to be in a playful state anymore they don't want us to just sit down and That's laugh true. and have a good time but also you know sometimes with with like particularly with BDSM I feel like it doesn't extend itself to levity very well because it's so structured Mm. and like the relationships within it are so structured it's very easy to forget that this isn't like we're not trying to devise a train schedule like it's easy to forget that it's easy to not laugh at yourself it's easy to believe that these bonds of like honor and respect it's not a knighthood like it's easy to forget that you can just be wild with it you can just do whatever you want with it nobody's coming to check and to your point i think it's also because when a lot of BDSM and kink education goes around, those are the conversations that we start off so much with is these, these type of conversations that sometimes the fun, playful, artistic, whimsical elements of it, it kind of is the last thing that gets mentioned. And most of the time you can almost run out of time when you're having these conversations to mention, hey, have a good time, whatever that looks like to you. See honestly that's my biggest problem with sexual education is that you know you want to you want to spread it to as many people as possible but in actuality you can only touch the surface when you're trying to spread it as far as possible right like you're trying to get to as many people as possible so you only have a certain amount of talking points and then you kind of have to go into only that over and over again as opposed to if you had the same group of people and then you were teaching them or just like addressing them repeatedly about things and ideas becoming more advanced so honestly the main reason why i write more than anything else is because my writing is not surface level it's not kink 101 it's it's detailed it's huge and it's human and all of these things that i was talking about today this like micro like this microscopic study of like sexuality this is like a clinical rendition of how i write but how i write it it incorporates all of these elements into my writing and i feel like honestly in terms of reaching people and having impact it is so much more effective because you know when you read when you read something in which you are definitely going to find yourself somewhere you're going to find it relatable because i'm i may be doing strange sexual things but i'm being a human being just like you while i'm doing them and you're going to find yourself in that and then it's easier to understand these things about yourself about me about people absolutely when there's connection to it as well when people are reading it there's maybe they're getting questions of like oh you know what i want to try this or hey someone else is doing this and i don't feel so alone anymore and i feel like with reading they can people can pause let it sink in reread the sentence over again right. they really can take some time to let that information sink in at the level and speed that they want to also one of the things that is super important to connection is that I'm not a hundred percent comfortable with my sexuality either. When I'm teaching, I'm gonna try to hide that. But when I'm writing, or honestly, I try to incorporate it into my teaching as well. I'm gonna share the things that make me uncomfortable as well. And then it's easier to have connection because then they're like, "Oh, she doesn't know it all. I don't, and you don't, and we can just." share what we know and then make whatever we can of it. I don't think any I think sex is one of those topics that really 
who does know it all? Like, I don't think it's, I don't think anybody can. Like, I actually don't believe that anybody can. We can share the knowledge that we have. But it's too vast of a subject. And we're all so different that how could you, what works for me might not work for you. Very versa, maybe like people aren't into the same things. So yeah, when the term expert, I have to laugh because yeah, we can, I don't know. It's not one of those topics that two plus two equals four. Sure. But what, if I can do the same thing, you do it, we're going to have different outcomes. And and that's, that's the point of it. That's the beauty of it. You can never write enough sexual stories because you gotta find like two thousand new ones every day. <laughs> exactly. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for your breakdown of the microscopic study here. And I, for my listeners, whereabouts can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Patreon under Ansela L. Uh, I do a podcast there as well. It's called, but that's not my point. It's uh, meandering thoughts. It's an exercise in digression. I mean, I talk a lot about kink, but I talk a lot about strange things I see out of my window as well. <laughs> and uh, you can find me on FetLife, same name, Ansel. You can find me on Instagram, uh, Ancillary Kink Support. Uh, please find me on Instagram. I have no followers and I'm terrible at it. <laughs> you know what? I, I struggle. With, I feel like Instagram, it's so hard. And nine times out of 10, I feel like I've gotten that you're being reported. You're being reported. So you know what? I should oh, really Oh yeah, switch. that just happened to me. Oh. What's the deal with that? And also, I barely post, so I have no idea what I even got reported for. Oh, they didn't even show you. Oh, you know what? I just, censorship is real, people. Make sure you stay connected on other platforms. I will make sure to put all of your links inside the description so people can get connected to you. Thank you. Absolutely. But for my listeners- Oh, right. Can- you can also visit- Oh, go you ahead. can also visit my website. It's called Ancillary King Support. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. And make sure you take some of our classes because, oh my goodness, the type of information that you can pack in your one of our classes, I must say, was incredible. I learned a lot through both of your classes. I really like your structure of it as well. And thank you again so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to meet you. I'm glad you're in the country right now. Have a nice trip home. Oh, thank you. And as my listeners, I'll see you next week. And as always, stay kinky.